Hello and welcome to the Keep Moving Podcast with MIT professor John Donovan. Over a 40-plus year career, Professor Donovan has impacted thousands of organizations and founded 27 companies, six of which went public. He is a sought-after entrepreneur and business advisor throughout the world. We will dig into what makes businesses tick and how to make them more successful. Welcome. Today we're going to talk about the Donovan model. Uh, sometimes it's been referred to as the Donovan framework, but what it does is the model gives you a framework of how to understand how companies and entrepreneurs interact and how the market works. Uh, before we get started, I'd encourage you to pause this uh, podcast and go and download a copy of it. You, it's available at professordonovan.com model. Again, professordonovan.com model. What you'll see basically is an X and Y axis that has management in the bottom left-hand corner inside the X and Y axis. And on the top right is the entrepreneur space. So we have two spaces roughly defined. The right-hand top triangle of that axis um, is the entrepreneur space. And the bottom left is the management space. And it's important to note that the, the axes on the left, the Y axis, uh, goes from standard to revolutionary. It's the type of technology and its impact. And then on the bottom, we have perceived customer wants starting out near the zero axis all the way up to real customer needs. And at that intersection at the zero point is a uh, black hole. We're going to talk about this today. First of all, um, Professor Donovan, where did this come out of? I know there's a you've been thinking about this and working with this. Where was what's been the sort of part that sort of spurred you on to think of things this way? What happened is, if I look back at my history, is I started teaching at MIT technical people, and and I branched out and started teaching some technical people within companies, and then when I moved into executive training and executive education. What I noticed is what companies were successful and what companies weren't. And I found a dichotomy that I had trouble with. I took a look in those days at companies like Digital Equipment Corporation that were managed really well. Uh, They worried about costs. They worried about markets. They worried about profitability, stockholder relations. But yet, they failed. And I couldn't figure out why they failed. Correspondingly, I saw companies like General Motors or General Electric or that continually to be successful. What did the difference was? And then I saw companies during my that period, like Hewlett Packard, that were doing really well. And I said, what were the keys? And then I started separating operational people with entrepreneurs. Once I did that, poof, this model then came about. And I realized the president of a company had to really be ambidextrous. He had to be a good manager, and a good entrepreneur. He had to be do both. And underneath him, he had different characteristics. When he was a good entrepreneur, he had to be a good leader. Mm-hmm. What are good leaders? They're dispensers of hope. It's okay if the entrepreneur side of him fails now and then. I'll give an example. Samsung. Chairman Lee clearly made right choices moving into cell phones and moving into flat screens, but he made some other choices like moving into the automobile industry and failed. Mm -hmm. It was okay. Nobody said he was a failure. And as his son said to me one time, he only has to make one right decision a year Mm -hmm. and Samsung survives. However, on the operational side, failure is unacceptable. 
Okay, you you cannot turn around and fail. You cannot fail to produce an automobile that seats explode. You cannot fail to have a drug that has got safety problems with it, food that has bacteria in it. Operationally in the company, everything has to be right. So operational people are dispensers of caution. They're constantly saying to their people, it has to be right, careful of this, careful of that. Everything has to work. So you need two sides to a company to be successful, entrepreneurs and operational. Now, why do you need the entrepreneur at all? It's because whatever space you have in that diagram, the lower left, that space can disappear with a disruption. I see. That's really what happens. That space gets exploded. Now, you've got that vertical axis, the y-axis. That's not just from standard technologies to revolutionary technologies. That's from processes change. That's from government regulations change. And then on the user side, what users say they want today, tomorrow they want something different. Mm-hmm. So the entrepreneur is operating in the space of revolutionary processes or technologies and in spaces where they've got to educate their customers and such. Now, what happens is those, those lines shift. When that left-hand, lower left-hand quadrant blows up, it blows up because technology, that, that lower axis, the x-axis, moves up. And the y-axis, because people want something, moves over to the right. All of a sudden, there's nothing left for the operational person. Mm-hmm. The entrepreneur then must have an operational idea. Now, it's not good enough that you just have an entrepreneur because having a great idea isn't good enough unless you can monetize it. So you have to take that idea and place it back into an operational space for them to scale it, for them to make money with it, for them to gather structure around it. And then the cycle starts all over again. Okay. So um, the the whole idea we sort of we we talk about this. I know we've talked about it as sort of right hand ideas and left hand ideas. The right hand ideas being sort of focusing on the right part of this graph, and the left hand so focusing on the left. So left hand ideas are management ideas, cutting costs, like you've said, and as we enumerate here, business model, asset scale, profitability, status quo, and resistance to change. And then on the right-hand side or the entrepreneur side, it's new ideas, business needs, customer needs, disruptive technology, and disruptive environment. And there's a barrier between those two zones or those two areas. And one of the tricks, I guess, and this is really for a, in a new company, would you agree? I mean, it's it's sort of the same in a, I mean, I'm sorry, in, a, in an existing company. Right. Uh, but it is sort of the same in a new company is that the entrepreneur has to operationalize their idea in order to be successful. Is that true? In a new company, the entrepreneur is alone. <clears throat> so in a new company, he has to not only come up with the entrepreneur ideas, but he, it's left to his capability and his steam to operationalize that. In a large company, he, the entrepreneur does have, with support of management, the luxury of coming up with the idea and then breaking through and having the operational people then take that idea and scale it. That only works if if senior management protects those ideas. Okay. <clears throat> so, for example, at Xerox... I was just going to say, why don't you bring up that park in Xerox? Uh, Xerox has Palo Alto Research Center. They did the mouse. They did Ethernet. 
They did wonderful things. Okay, so they've got an entrepreneur up here in yes. the top right that invented the mouse. Right. And they bring it up to that barrier that's they, talking to management and say, we got this thing called the mouse. Right. Why didn't Xerox sell it? Because the Xerox management placed it under the control of operational people. The operational people, if you're an operational person, you say, well, how am I incented right now? I'm incented to get out the new color copier, and if I do, I get a bonus. If I do, I get a vacation. What do I get out of this new idea? Nothing. So they don't fund it. They let that die, and they put their resources in their current operational things that they are incentivized to do. Mm -hmm. So the new idea dies. But that's a failure of senior management. Failure of senior management and the culture that the senior management has placed in the company. So, but the senior management is sitting there saying, our stock price is great. We're doing really well. Um, my shareholders are going to be upset if I start selling mice. Nobody knows what a mice is, mouse is. Right. Um, <laughs> a mice is. Mice is. Um, so they, they don't know what that is. And I've got this army of salespeople that are doing great. I mean, they hit it out of the park every week. You know, they're they're selling more copiers, everything. So how do they deal with that? I mean, how does that senior executive go and say, because he's also could fail. He might come in with the mouse and nobody might buy it. That's right. And that comes back to this third, this other component. There's several steps here. The entrepreneur has to come up with ideas. They have to be operationalized. Uh, monetized and then operationalized and then the other thing is this black hole what's preventing anything moving in here it's this thing called black hole and what that is it sucks all the energy out of a company it freezes everything it doesn't let the entrepreneur come down doesn't let ideas go up and what are things in the black hole you just went through a litany of one of the Mm -hmm. impediments namely success Mm -hmm. people have success now what do you do about success well, there is the extreme that Paula Lair, the chairman of Liz Claiborne, said to me, we're so successful. Sometimes what you have to do is create a crisis. Interesting. <laughs> he, he advocated creating a crisis. Well, what's really more the case, because things are changing so quickly, the crisis has quickly come upon you. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is, is the key for senior management that they've got is change. How do you manage change? That's this, that's this black hole. Now, it's interesting. As an MIT professor, I always thought of the hard sciences. Right. Okay, that's hard. It's calculus. It's physics. It's all those. Those are the hard sciences, by definition. And those flaky things like touchy-feeling, conflict, uh, all the things that they teach in the liberal arts area uh, of how to get along with people and relationships and such. Ah, that's the soft sciences. That's not, that's easy. When I became president of a company and running companies and doing these sorts of things, I realized the soft sciences are really the hard sciences. Hmm. Give me an advanced differential equation and I can solve it. Give me a mutiny within a company where they're not trusting senior management. Mm -hmm. How do you solve that? So what the senior management has to do is to think, how does he, and this is the core here, enact change? I argue, my whole argument, hypothesis on change in this black hole, is that people change all the time. Some people say, it won't change. People change all the time. So, for example, I'd like to have all the listeners do this. Fold your hands. Just fold your hands. Now, you got your hands folded. Look down. Some people have their right thumb on top of their left thumb. Some people have their left thumb on top of their right thumb. If you've got your right thumb on top, sort of raise your hand a little bit. If we could see all the listeners at once... 
we would see about half of you are right thumbers, half of you are left thumbers. This is Democrats, Republicans. I don't know which one they are, but now what I'm going to ask all the readers to do, could you change all the fingers in your hands? Change them exactly opposite. So your thumbs are on top and all your other fingers are wedged together in a different way. How does that feel? Strange. Strange. I had a General Kellogg turned around and said to me, an army general said, this feels perverted. (laughs) That felt strange. That's a minor little change. You're going to go in and tell the people in your organization that the things they've worked on in management, they're producing that BlackBerry with that key and all your customers are saying is great, is not good. Mm -hmm. And we've got to try something else. Right. Who do you think you are? (laughs) That's going to feel perverted. It's going to feel strange. It's going to feel that. So my argument is change feels uncomfortable. Now, people say people won't change. I say they change all the time. You behave one minute with the taxi driver in one way. This next second with your spouse, you behave altogether different. You change dramatically. People in Alaska behave quite differently than the people in Boston, Massachusetts. Change immediately. What are then the impediments to change? That's the key. You have to get rid of the impediments, and I'll give you some of them. One is the impediment is people don't see a vision. They don't see a vision. So what do you have to do? You draw diagrams. You turn around and build pilots of it. You get early adopters. You have to share the vision, and that's Mm. why I said... Earlier, when you said the entrepreneurs within BlackBerry, if they had tried many of those things, built pilots, showed them, their colleagues and senior management could have said, oh, now I see the vision for this new touchscreen. And and what you're saying is they may have seen it and said, that's crazy. That's crazy. So then they could see it and that's crazy. Then the next thing that you've got to do is, what's the next impediment? The next impediment is culture. The culture is... We have to have everything right. Let's take the the cultures. What do you do for cultures? You take this Japanese culture, a shy Japanese girl that is so respective, never speaks above a whisper. How do you get her to change so she becomes a top presenter and executive? Mm -hmm. You take her out of that culture and you put into into another culture. Mm -hmm. You take that shy Japanese girl and you put her into an MIT fraternity house or an MIT sorority house and within a year, she's as bolsterous as any American. Okay. Is that a good thing? I don't know. It's a good thing. <laughs> okay. So that's a good thing. You've got to make sure that you change people for the right because right. you can create monsters. That's a very good point. So culture is an impediment to change. Lack of judgment. If you don't have good judgment, big problem. You've got to, you, you, you can't change people. That, 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 that you, if you showing bad judgment, what do you need for good judgment? You need three things. You, as the leader, have to be able to look at the data. First of all, gather the data. And if you're gathering the data, what mode do you have to be in? Curiosity. Mm-hmm. Let me get any piece of data. I'm going to make this judgment about going to this product or what. I'm going to be curious. After you gather the data, what do you have to do? You have to analyze it. What mode do you have to be there? You have to be neutral. I'm not going to say one way or the other. I'm going to look at the data. Then the last thing you must do is you must act. Hmm. So you must do something immediately. A basic fundamental problem I'm going to tell to everybody that's listening to this broadcast, no one is good at all three because there is an axiomoron. How can you be this curious, neutral person and 
Be act. When you act, you're decisive. You don't, you believe you're right. You don't listen to anybody else. When you're acting, you're charging ahead. You gotta be two different people. So how do you do that? I've seen very few people that can do that whole span. What you have to do is have a co-pilot. Hmm. Your co-pilot has got to compliment you in what you're not good at. Uh, and I'll give you Ross Perot. Ross Perot, presidential candidate, founder of EDS, founder of Perot Systems, would act. Who was his co-pilot? It was Mont Myerson. Most mm -hmm. people don't know that, but Mont Myerson was in the back room at EDS doing the analysis, doing gathering the data. And then Ross Perot would act. When he didn't have Mark Myerson next to him, it was a disaster. When he ran for president of the United States, he picked the wrong judgment, the wrong person to be vice presidential candidate. You know, why are you vice president? I don't know. Bad disaster. He then started Perot Systems after he sold EDS. He didn't bring Mark Myerson. He didn't have his co-pilot. It was a disaster. Then he got his co-pilot back and it became a success. Hmm. You have to look for co-pilots. Now, what is a co-pilot? A co-pilot will tell you when you're wrong. How many people will tell you, for example, that you've got bad breath? Think about that. <laughs> it's a good idea for them to tell you, and it's a good idea for you to know. But how many people will tell you? The answer right. is very few. How many people will tell you that you have overreacted or you're out of line with something so that you can correct it? And then how many people will you listen to for that? So w another impediment to change is good judgment. I'm going to tell you what you have to do there is have a good as a good pilot. Another impediment to change, big impediment to change, is trust. Mm -hmm. If somebody doesn't trust you, they won't change for you. You have to establish that trust, but just as importantly is you cannot break it. Trust is very fragile. It's humpy dumpy. Mm -hmm. It can break, and that comes back to if it breaks, you can recover if you admit it immediately. You've got to preserve the trust. And that's what's happened. That's what happened to Mr. Nixon. That's what's happened to these other people, mm -hmm. great leaders that made a mistake. They lost our trust, but they didn't admit it and correct it. The American people, for example, are very forgiving, mm -hmm. are extremely forgiving. If you just tell them, I made a mistake, and it works. It works politically, and it works many other places. It works. Mm -hmm. So, But it does seem to be we have fewer and fewer people saying i made a mistake very few that's exactly right as our culture changes where it is becoming more of a black mark to to a make permanent, mistakes uh, yeah, a permanent yeah. mark yeah as the nuns used to say to me when you made a mistake you're going into the permanent book oh boy really yeah, <laughs> oh, when i was in elementary school that's what the old nuns said that's a permanent mark in your book so now you're we're talking a little bit about the relationships that play into this this model and how they sort of change things uh and you have a helpful discussion of some of those crabs and cynics and can you go through that for us well there's another problem with change that you've got to realize some people there's a few that you just cannot change and those people are damaging to your organization these it, i have to make a distinction here between a skeptic and a cynic a skeptic is somebody that will challenge you. Is that change right? Is that change right? Is that change right? right? Once you convince them, either through pilots and education and all the things I've just said, good judgment and everything, they then become your greatest advocate because they never 
it's just as difficult to ch- get them to change off your subject. Mm-hmm. So they stick by you forever. Uh, Paul Johnson at Unilever was one of those, very skeptical about surround and three-tiered architecture and everything. But once we convinced him, he became the champion of that. Now, that's a skeptic. A cynic is, no matter what you say to them, they're going to find something wrong. They're not going to go that way. I draw the analogy of crabs. They are crabs. My son and I would go out on a Sunday afternoon into, into Manchester Harbor, and row out with our boat and pick up crabs. We'd put them in a basket in the back of the boat. Now they're, they're trapped. However, they could have crawled out. They could have just gone up the basket and out the other side, back into the ocean. Why didn't they? It turns out as soon as one crab starts crawling up, the other crabs do what? They reach up, pull them back down. Hmm. Now, how do you recognize a crab? How do you recognize somebody in your organization that's a crab? Well, first of all, crabs move only sideways or backwards. They never move forward. That's fascinating. So if somebody is objecting to you, one easy way to smoke them out is saying, what's the alternative? Mm-hmm. If they have no alternative, they're moving sideways or backwards. Beep, beep, beep. Is that a crab? Now, if you determine they're a crab, which you cannot change, if they're a cynic, you cannot change them. You can't teach a bunny how to speak. Mm-hmm. No matter how you try, bunny, tell me you're cold. Tell me you're cold. He just won't teach you. A crab... You cannot teach them to move forward. What do you like to do about your crabs in your organization? The problem is crabs in your organization will pull other people down. Mm -hmm. So you've got to do something here. What do you do? Well, what I'd like to do is boil them. Mm -hmm. That's That's frowned upon, yeah. That's frowned upon. (laughs) So what you have to do is identify the crabs and then isolate them. Now, if you have the ability in an entrepreneur organization, fire them. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you've got a small company, get them out of there immediately because they'll pollute everything. But you don't have that in big companies usually, and certainly in government organizations you don't. So what you would do is you try to isolate them, assign them to other projects, assign them to other locations. Just get them away from the people that you don't want to see polluted because mm-hmm. they will pollute your entrepreneur activities ever becoming So if, if you came into an organization as a consultant and you saw crabs – you would say stop everything and fix that, isolate that. I would say isolate that because if you don't, you're never going to get through it. Those crabs will pollute you and bring other people down. You have to keep moving. And that goes back to our first broadcast. Mm-hmm. What the president of Yale said to me when I got one of my degrees and I lingered on the stage, he said, son, let me give you some advice. Keep moving, keep <laughs> moving, keep moving. I'm going to tell you every CEO in every company has to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, because if you're not keep moving, you are going to die. If you think about it, if you're a company, what disruption is going to occur? I can't tell you. Right. I just tell you there's going to be one. Right. What I can give you is a structure of how to operate in that disruption. That, my friend, is the jewel of this model. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, one of the things that John did in his doctorate thesis is he promoted this model and then said one of the big black hole things, and I just said impediments to change, was culture, was lack of vision. His thesis was your customers were an impediment to change mm-hmm. because your customers want your present products. Right. They want you to keep servicing your present products. So you've got a lot of forces moving against you change, and it takes leadership, courage, hope, vision, all those things for the leaders to follow this model. So it's not only dictating it, but it's um, 
supporting it really because yeah, i mean you could have a yeah. chief innovation officer there's some some of those floating around out there but if they don't have the resources that's right or even the unil i don't know if it's unilateral ability to do things but really the backing of senior management that's right so i think what what i've seen is good application of this diagram is for senior management to understand this yes because entrepreneurs we can find them there's a lot of people who have good ideas and right. can respond that but without that that infrastructure that safety net of support of senior management they're not going to be successful that's right you cannot be successful as an entrepreneur in a company you'll get killed as an entrepreneur in a company mm-hmm. every single bonus and everything is going against you, you get bonuses because your stamp price goes up Share price goes up because your profitability goes up. Profitability goes up because your production's going up. Because the operational aspect of your company is running well. Right, right. Not your entrepreneurial activities. Because the entrepreneurial activities suck away profits, suck away right. those sorts of things. But in five years, they're the salvation you've So got. was this 30 years ago called the research department? Or how is that different? Because uh, HP used to invest in research. Xerox did as well. The answer is the seeds of an entrepreneur idea were in the research department. Okay. So AT&T had Bell Telephone Laboratories. Incredible. And people graduated from MIT. We have a a 4.0 scale at MIT for Mm -hmm. your grades. They wouldn't take anybody that wasn't close to a 4.0. They're the most brilliant people. They did the Big Bang Theory in there. They invented the transistor. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary. So that you could say is the research arm, but it wasn't connected to the operational aspect. Interesting. So that was sitting out there a little bit with Xerox, with Palo Alto Center, a little bit with IBM's Yorktown Research Center. wasn't connected in so that things could move from Bell Telephone Laboratories, get a business model, and then come into operation. Well, why were they doing it then? Why were they researching? But they, they, they thought it was, in the case of AT&T, They had enormous profits. They were a monopoly. They felt as though they had to give back something to society and give back something to the world. So they would turn around and enter into joint partnerships with MIT to develop Mm -hmm. the Multics operating system, to develop the internet, to develop, uh, they got together with GE to do the same thing. The Big Bang Theory, you know, what what does AT&T get out of Proving the the world started with just a few atoms and boom, the world, the galaxy, the mm-hmm. the the whole universe started that way. So it was really an idea of giving back more than somehow getting profitability. Interesting. I think that those two things were mixed up in there. Interesting. So senior management sort of said, "Well, let them do what they want. We're making enough money to cover it." Exactly. Interesting. Now this is we're talking about you know an existing, an entrepreneur in an existing organization. I know in your book, there's a section on new entrepreneurs and we see that on the news every day, new entrepreneurs, but do they face the same challenges of they're in the right-hand side, they come up with an idea, they're in basically by themselves right? and they have to bring in management to operationalize it. Are those necessarily the same people? I mean, or do they need help? No, usually... The entrepreneur is not a good manager. Okay. Usually. So he has to bring in co-pilots. Let me give you concrete here. The entrepreneur really destroys structure. Mm -hmm. He's always looking for 
cracks in the structure that are crises and opportunities. He gets young people around him that doesn't pay attention to certain rules and such. When you're going to operationalize something, you've got to put structure around it. You have to be, I'll give you a concrete example. If the entrepreneur is doing the operational thing, he will freeze the marketing force. The marketing force will say, this is today's product, my sales force, but just wait for the, wait for my president. Tomorrow he's going to come up with a new idea. Mm-hmm. Why bother selling today's product? Because tomorrow he's going to have a new product. Right. You can't do that because you're freezing your operational people. You need somebody to be in structure, and the entrepreneur has to respect that. Mm-hmm. And the operational people have to respect the entrepreneur. And I've emphasized more the entrepreneur. You asked about research organizations. Those research organizations could have been a glimmer of hope. You want to have those. Right. But then you want to be able to take those few good ideas and operationalize them. O&R has, has the what's Office, o- of, Na- o- okay. Office of Naval Research. The United States Navy sets aside a large amount of money for doing research that may or may not be good for the Navy. Most of the time, they have projects for the Navy. But they invented GPS. Can you imagine somebody going to the head of Operation O&R, Office of Naval Research, saying, I'm going to put an atomic clock up there that is going to be able to, in a satellite, that's going to be able to tell where anybody is within a square meter on the Earth. I would say, you're crazy. They invested in that. That one worked. There are 10 other ideas that didn't work. I guess that's true. We don't see all the ones that fail. That fail. But the Navy has turned around and developed a way of taking those ideas that work and operationalizing them. So, for example, when we had this coal disaster, how do you prevent, that's when a terrorist came up next to this ship, when a little fishing boat and had explosives in it and blew aside and blew almost sunk the ship mm-hmm. at the port. O&R said, let's look at that problem. They came up with 10 ideas. One of them is to, you know, double hull the hull mm-hmm. ships and others is to have radar to see who's coming close and all these ideas. Well, eventually they came up with one or two and they piloted and such that worked. Then they operationalized it. So if you have a closer link between, I don't want to say get rid of your research, but you've got to turn around and figure out a way of operationalize that. Unless you're in the straight the business of helping society in a research organization like DAPA is. Mm-hmm. DAPA is funding things that might help the government but might help the world. Mm-hmm. So we, the United States public says, it's okay. We'll fund that and whatever it is goes in the public domain. Good idea. And the internet came out of that. Right. Okay. So we don't know if that was good or bad yet. but <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> well, conversation has been wonderful and insightful i want to remind you that the diagram we're talking about is the donovan model and it's available at professordonovan.com slash model m-o-d-e-l and we really encourage that you uh that you download that and look at it and we'd love to hear your questions and comments about it as well you can find us on twitter at prof donovan mit and on facebook at facebook.com slash prof donovan mit be sure to join us again for our next episode 